13 again, verses 25 through 32. It was my goal to uh, preach uh, a complete stanza of eight verses, but we didn't get finished last Sunday, so we'll finish the last four verses of Psalm 119. Uh, Daleth is the stanza or the strophe, and we've entitled this, The Word of God Revives. It revives us. So beginning, we left off in verse 29. Remove from me the way of lying and grant me thy law graciously. So first we saw that the psalmist is in heaviness. His soul is cleaving, it's glued to the dust, and he's asking God to quicken or revive him by means of the word. The parallel is in verse 28. His soul is melting because of heaviness. Strengthen thou me according to the word. So to be revived in heaviness is to be strengthened by the Word of God, so that we remain on the pathway of holiness while we are so heavy. We don't know why he's heavy. Could be something circumstantial. Could be his own soul is experiencing weightiness of some kind. But we know he's in heaviness because he's asking for revival. So the first thing we saw is he declared his ways unto the Lord. That's the first thing we should do. Sinful ways, if appropriate, but also Ways of heaviness, the trouble that's bothering us. Psalm 143. I poured out my complaint before the Lord. I showed Him all my trouble. So God invites you to pour out before Him all your troubles, all that's causing you heaviness, all that you are struggling with. And then next we saw trust in the ways of the Lord. After we declare, we trust in His ways. And we saw that because... When the psalmist acknowledged that God answered when he declared his ways, then he said, teach me thy statutes, make me to understand the way of your precepts. So shall I talk of your wondrous works. So he takes the position of a submissive student. So while he's in heaviness, he's asking God to declare and teach him the word of God. And so he comes under the word in heaviness because that's what he needs to hear. More than anything else, all the voices crying out to the psalmist in his heaviness, the one voice he needs to hear is the voice of God through the Word that will strengthen and quicken. So he comes like a student. He doesn't skip class. He keeps coming to worship, even when he doesn't feel like it, even in a time of great heaviness. Now we pick up. The third thing we look at is remove from me the way of lying. Lying means deception falsehood, and disappointment. We live in a culture where lying is the accepted norm. It's expected. It's justified. It's taken for granted. Nobody's worked up about it. We assume that people in leadership are lying to us. We, we always assume it because truth is so rare in our culture. Now, we know where that comes from ultimately. The Bible tells us that the devil in John 8, 44, when he speaketh a lie, he's speaking of his own. It's his own nature because he is a liar. He doesn't just lie occasionally. It's not that he lies most of the time. His identity is the great liar. That's who he is. That's not just what he does. That comes out of his being. He's a liar, and he's the father of it. He is the source, the originator, and the fall of man itself. Your fallenness was inherited through lie. 
lies in Genesis 3. He's the great liar. 1 John 5.19 says, We know that we're from God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. The word lieth means to be held in subjection under the sway of wickedness, which could also be translated the wicked one. And how does he hold people in his sway, in his will? Darkness, deception, falsehood, lying. Revelation 12, 9. That great dragon was cast out, called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. Not to mention, not only in the Old Testament and the New, there were false prophets among the people. His ministers presenting themselves as angels of light, infiltrating Israel according to Jeremiah 23 and throughout the Old Testament, infiltrating the church today according to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. There will be many false prophets among you. So the psalmist requests what? Now notice what he said. He didn't say, remove me from the way of lying. He said, remove from me the way of deception. Oh, that's different, isn't it? Two observations here. One, we see once again, your greatest problem is not the devil. It's not the world you live in. It's not the culture of lying. It's in you. You are your greatest problem. The greatest problem is not your wife. It's not your husband. It's not your parents. It's not your children. It's not the government. It's not your church. Your greatest problem is inside of you. And the psalmist, if he's going to have strength, must acknowledge, Lord, remove from me this way of deception. The second thing we learn is that you're not a victim when you're deceived morally. You are accountable for the deception. Now, intellectually, being deceived is... You're not accountable. For example, if an IRS agent emailed you and said, we're going to do an audit. He shows up on your doorstep, shows his credentials, comes in, gets all your records, gets your social security number, says, well, you owe so many fines, you got to pay those, we'll send you a letter later. And he leaves and you find out he was a fraud. He stole your social security number. Now you're a victim. You know why? It was intellectual deception. You were trying to do the right thing. You came under an authority as God wanted you to, and you were deceived. What the psalmist is talking about is moral deception. For that, you and I are accountable. It's when you fall prey to that thing that was too good to be true. And why did you do so? Because something in you locked on to the deception because of desire. And as long as you're doing what you want, as long as you're doing what you want, you are accountable, and I am accountable to God. The psalmist knows in this time of heaviness, there are going to be voices of deception crying out to him, telling him, go this path, go this way, do this thing, don't do that thing. What he desperately needs is not for the liars to go away, because if the devil was taken away tomorrow, you know what? You still have a problem. It's deception within you. Remove from me the way of lying. Israel was not a victim. You heard read this morning. Now they were being lied to by men they trusted. Men that were leaders of Israel. 
And we learn in Jeremiah 6.13. Every one of them from the prophet to the priest were dealing falsely. That's the same word for lying in our text. All of them, except for Jeremiah. Every single one were given to falsehood. Jeremiah 5.31. The prophets prophesy lies and the priests bear rule by their means. So they prophesy a lie. They give it to the priests and the priests teach it. They bear sway over the people by means of the lying prophets. Now why is Israel victim? Why are they not a victim? How are they accountable when here are these men, they trusted, there's many of them, and they're selling them a bunch of lies. And yet, we clearly see in Jeremiah 6, God's fury is going to be poured out, not only on the prophets and the priests, but the people that bought into the lies. Why is that? A few reasons. Number one, covetousness. From the least to the greatest, everyone is given to covetousness. From the prophets to the priest, everyone dealeth falsely. Lies will have no impact on you if you can overcome covetousness. There's something within us that when we're tempted, what is drawing us away? Not the lie, the lust. You're accountable for believing lies. You're accountable if you go to a church that preaches a false gospel. And Israel's accountable because it was their covetousness that led them away. Jeremiah 5.31, the prophets prophesy lies and the priests bear rule by their means. And my people love to have it so. You can't buy into a lie if you don't love to have what the lie is presenting. The psalmist knows there's something within him called deception. The deceitful corruptions of the lust, Ephesians 4.22, that he needs help with or what's going to happen. He's going to move away from the pathway in his heaviness because the lies are always offering you something that is perceived to be better than where you are with God. And you and I need help. What else does Jeremiah say? God's saying, To whom shall I give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ear is uncircumcised that they cannot hear. They cannot hear. What that means is they cannot hear. They cannot. Behold, the word of the Lord is a reproach unto them. The word behold tells us a parallel. Behold, the word of the Lord is a reproach unto them, the uncircumcised in the ear. They have no delight in it. That's why they cannot hear. They have no preference for it. They have no will for it. They have no affection and pleasure for it. So you expect God to say, well, they're buying into all these lies. It's the prophets and the priests' fault, so I'm going to let them off the hook. No, therefore, I'm full with the fury of the Lord. That's the Lord speaking. Why is God's wrath revealed in Romans 1.28? Because they did not like to retain the knowledge of God. He gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not fitting. The word like means not worthwhile. God is not worth the effort. He's not worth the time. He's not worth the energy. 
The knowledge of God is not worth it. So the wrath of God gives a society over to a reprobate mind to do all kinds of things that we're seeing today in our culture. Is the knowledge of God worth it to you? How do you treat the Word of God? How do you treasure and value the knowledge of God in and through Scripture? So Israel is feeding on ashes. Why? Isaiah 44, 22. Because a deceived heart has turned them aside. What's the problem? Is it the prophets and priests? Yes, in part. Are they accountable? Yes. A deceived heart has turned them aside. They cannot say, I have a lie in my right hand. How much more in heaviness when a false teacher or your own heart wants to latch on to a lie in your right hand that that feels good, that looks good, and suggests if you just follow the lie, unless you see it as a lie, the heaviness will lift, you'll feel better, you'll get out of the the heaviness. And by doing so, we, we leave the purpose and the path that God has us on in the heaviness. So we are accountable. We're not victims when we fall prey to lies out of something within us called the way of lying, deception, or moral deception. Intellectually, yes. You could be doing the right thing, trying to do the right thing, and somebody deceive you. But when it's desire, we're always accountable. All right, now what is the psalmist going to say when he makes this position to God? What is going to help him? Overcome the way of lying, this deception, this deceitfulness that still remains in him and us. Well, it's rather shocking, actually. He would say, grant me your law graciously. How is that helpful? I need the law to overcome the way of deception. How does that even work? How is that going to help you? We know what the law means. Do this, don't do this. It means keep commands. How is keeping commands going to help me avoid the way of deception? Well, he adds the word graciously. It's going to help us out here. Graciously. People have been squabbling over law and grace for centuries, and I guess we'll keep doing it. Because these seem like two polar opposites, and in fact they are, when you look and consider them. Grace is gift. Grace is no work. Grace is no effort in earning. It's gift, gratis. Law is work for it. Earn it, deserve it, do the commands. How does that help? Law and grace. Well, when we understand something about law and grace, we understand that they're both aiming for the same thing. They're aiming for the same thing. You see, first of all, the psalmist understands that grace has brought an end to the law for righteousness. It's over. That's what Paul said. For Christ is the cessation. He's the termination. He's the goal. He's the end. He's the limit. He's the finisher. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. It's over. It's done. If you approach the law any other way, you are in trouble. 
It is done. Finished. So the only way you can keep a command is through grace as you rest in the finished work of Christ. Your soul is resting in Jesus. And then you're moving out in what the Word of God says. Psalm 85, we just read, Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Now picture a courtroom, and the judge is God Himself sitting on the bench, and you have two teams of lawyers. You've got the defense lawyers. The law firm is named Mercy and Peace. You've got the prosecuting attorneys. Their law firm is Righteousness and Truth. And these guys don't like each other. In fact, they're going for opposite extremes. Mercy and peace say, Your Honor, we want to acquit this man. Now the defendant's name, the, the, the man that has broken the law, his name is Sinner. And he shattered the law. He has broken the entire law. We want him acquitted. Peace says, Lord, we want him to have peace with you. And God says, Okay, I'm inclined to that. I am a God of mercy. I'm a God of peace. Okay. I object, Your Honor. The prosecuting law firm says, that's not right. Because you're a God of justice. You're a God of strict justice. Not one iota, not one jot, not one tittle of the law will be overlooked. And truth says, and that's the truth, and that man is guilty. And God says, that's right. Throw the book at him. Now we got a huge dilemma. You can't have both. Unless you have God, as we just sang, amazing love. That thou, my God, would die for me. So mercy and truth, embrace and righteousness and peace, kiss each other in the Lord Jesus Christ. The law is finished. It is finished. The types and shadows are finished. All is finished in Jesus Christ. So grace causes us to rest in the finished work of Christ. Well, then why is he saying then, Lord, grant me your law if it's finished? Because now out of that rest, grace empowers us to keep commandments. Not in order that we might be justified, but out of that justification and right position with God, now grace empowers. The law cannot empower that. And you need power in heaviness. You need strength. You need revival. Why? Because God expects you to stay on the pathway of obeying Him in heaviness. And grace is the pathway that empowers you to stay under God. In a time of confusion maybe. A time of great pain and sorrow. A time of heaviness. I'll assure you God is never going to say to you, Look, you just need some time away. You just need to get away. I understand you're heavy. You don't feel good. It's hard to obey when you're heavy. So I suggest you go to the beach for about three months. Well, stay as long as you like. Don't worry about church. Don't worry about loving anybody. Don't worry about my commands. Just get away. He's never going to tell you that. And you know what? When you, when you get away the problem, you still have the way of lying with you. You know, some people get away... Uh, because they're having a, an awful time, an awful heavy time in relationships. The problem is it never works. Never. Because they didn't do something with the way of lying. They just covered it up for a season. And it came all back again. God's not going to say that. We find in Romans chapter 8 verse 4. 
that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. See? Christ fulfilled the law. Grace has satisfied the law through the Lord Jesus Christ so that we now would fulfill the very righteousness of the law. What is that? Romans 13. Love. This is my commandment. This is my law. This is what God is after. Love. We are not given a free pass when it comes to love in heaviness. Now we... We may be in a position where we can't move out like we could and love the same way that we did. We can love with our words. We can still love. So how is grace going to provide that which counters the way of lying, which we just saw was desire and covetousness? How does granting the law graciously counter covetousness or desire? You should have answered that by now. In your head. Don't say it out loud. Genesis 33. The first time the verb form of the word gracious is used in the Bible. The noun form is used before that. The first time. Jacob is about to see Esau. Esau is coming with 400 men. Jacob remembers what Esau said. When I see you again, you're a dead man. He's a bit nervous. He just wrestled with the angel all night. He's now walking with a limp. In Genesis 33, he devises a strategy. He, he puts his least favored wives up front. The two handmaidens with their children, then Leah with her children, then Rachel and Joseph, they're at the back. They're, they're the favored status wife and son. And then he goes to meet Je- uh, Esau, bows down before him, and they embrace and they weep and they kiss each other's necks. Then Esau says, what meaneth this? Who are all these people? Jacob says, these are the children the Lord has graciously granted me. First time the word is used in the Bible. It's the verb form. Then Esau said, well, what meaneth all this drove that I met? So Jacob had devised a way to soften up Esau. He sent him several gifts, animals, one after another, just droves. He said, this is the way the Lord has blessed me and I want to give it as a gift to you. And Esau said, no, no. He said, I have enough. I've got enough. Jacob responds the second time after so many words and says, The Lord has been gracious unto me. I have enough. Take the gift. He urged him. He took it. Now you can't see it in the English, but in the Hebrew, those are not the same two words. Enough. The first enough means I have a lot. And Esau did. He was a wealthy man. I've got a lot. I've got much. The second Hebrew word, Jacob says, I have everything. I have it all. I have the whole, I have the totality. Because Jacob has God. When you have a lot, you're going to run out of a lot. And you're going to be left empty. But when you have God, that fountain never runs dry. The biblical word for enough Sufficiency is the counter in the Bible to covetousness, which you answered just a minute ago in your minds. Contentment. They're always countered in the Bible. Let your conversation be without covetousness. Okay? Be content with such things as you have. For He hath said, God, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do unto me. What can man do unto you? 
take away things you need, like a job, like your bank account, ultimately your life, but they can do a lot of worse things before you get there. I'm not afraid if He takes away my money, my car, my house, my livelihood. Why? Because of what God said. With five negatives, He said, no, never, no, never, no. Well, I leave you. Which means He's present as a God to help us. A very present help in a time of trouble. It's His presence that brings about a contentment that's going to guard us against the way of deception. Because if you have everything, who can dupe you with a lie? I don't need that. Thank you. I don't need that. If you bow down to worship me, I'll give you the whole world. So the devil said, Thank, I don't need that. When you're resting in the grace of God for who Jesus is, lost, fulfilled, and you're resting in the same person of Christ and who He is for you, then law is being fulfilled, meaning love. You're just keeping the commandments of the Bible. Out of that rest and contentment comes obedience, even in heaviness, when all these voices are saying, no, don't do that, leave him, leave her, go there. You need the Word of God alone to tell you how to navigate the heaviness. And so, the psalmist says, remove from me. Don't, don't remove me from it. Now, that would be great, but something's still going on inside when that happens. So you, you can go out in the mountains and hills and live in the desert, and you still have something within you that's a problem. Remove from me the way of deception and grant me graciously. Thy law. Let me see the fulfillment of the law in you alone, God, and let me rest in you in such a way that rather than buying into lies, because I don't need what they offer, I don't need what the devil offers, I don't need what anybody offers, I have Christ, as you just sang. All I have is Christ. That doesn't mean like, oh, poor me, all I have is Christ. It's all I need is Christ. Then we can keep walking in our heaviness, keep moving in the right direction, now understand, he's in heaviness. So he's going to run later, last verse. So he's, he may be just barely moving along, but he's still walking in the pathway of God's Word. What's he after? Revival and strength. Next, number four. What do we do next then? We're going to the Word. He says, I have chosen the way of truth. Thy judgments have I laid before me. Next. Decide. Decide for the way of truth. Make a choice. Now here we need to be balanced about the word choice. Sometimes we can go in the wrong direction based on some of our views about sovereign grace and we can deny choice altogether. We want to put what the psalmist says in the right context. So on, on the one side we... We, we don't want to fall prey to Arminian friends, and I say that with genuineness, they're friends, who would suggest to us that God must bow His knee to the sovereign will of your choice. That's what they're saying. I mean, when you get through all the fluff, Job was really not right. 
Job said, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose or thought of you can be thwarted, can be prevented, can be stopped, except the purpose of salvation. That can be thwarted. Nobody can thwart the purpose of God in creation. Psalm 135. Whatsoever the Lord pleased, that's what He did. In the heaven and the earth and the deep places. Nobody stopped Him. Nobody thwarted Him. Nobody prevented His hand. He did exactly as He pleased. Providence, Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does, He's doing whatever He pleases. And the scope of His pleasure is He's working all things after the counsel of His own will. Universal dominion. Who thwarts Him? No one. But when it comes to the will of the sinner, we must, God must bow to the supremacy of man's will. That's simply fallacy, false, not true. Thy people should be made willing in the day of His power. Alright, here's the other side of the coin that we must be careful that we don't lose sight of. A willing man is what? Willing. He's not forced. He's willing. God so transforms the will that now we become willing, which means we make a choice. So I can say by the authority of God's Word, you need to decide for Jesus Christ. You need to make a choice for Christ. Or you need to believe on His name. See, they're both true. And we have a tendency to negate the choice side of things. So let's not do that. So let's hear what the psalmist says. I have chosen, I have chosen, I've decided for truth. And you need to do so too. Every day, decide. Why is that? Because nobody ever feels the way of truth. That's not going to happen. Oh, how many times have I tried that? Have you? I don't feel good. This is the way I feel like going. I'm trying to feel my way on the pathway of truth. Nobody's prompted on this way of truth. It's chosen. Nobody is given a hunch. I've got this hunch. This is the way I should be going in my heaviness. No, that doesn't happen. The psalmist says, I have chosen. I have decided the pathway of truth. We don't wander upon it. We don't just happen to find ourselves there. We must decide for the way of truth. Why? Because His feelings are an unreliable source of guidance. And so are yours and so are mine. His hunches or or whatever we call them are not reliable to guide Him and keep Him on the pathway of truth. What is a choice based on what? The way of truth in God's Word. Oh, how susceptible we are when we don't feel good. And that's the point of the word heaviness, to be depressed. Who's ever felt good when they're depressed? I've never met a person that was depressed. I've never, in my own times of being cast down, thought, I'm feeling on top of the mountain. It's not the case. In that moment, I need to choose the way of truth, not feel it. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, and the end thereof are the ways of death. Seemeth right, in Proverbs 16, 25, is one word. It means what pleases him. What is according to impression or sensation. What is sensation? It's when you are impressed to do something based on a particular sensation or a quality. 
that is presented to you. And what is sensation? Your senses. It looks good. Or it looks right. Doesn't this look right? Yeah, I think it looks right. It feels right. It smells right. It sounds right. It even tastes right. The end of the way of your senses, the way you see it, the way you taste it, the way you feel it, the way you hear it, the way you smell it, the way you see it, is death. And how susceptible I am and you are in heaviness to, to start being guided that way. Because the one thing that I don't feel is good. Right? Do you ever have days when you don't feel good? The psalmist is in heaviness, and so he says, I have chosen the way of truth. If you want to be revived and strengthened, you've got to choose the way of truth. You can't feel it. How many times do you just say, I don't feel like going to church today? I don't feel like making that call. I don't feel like doing that good work. Hope I'm not the only one that feels like that at times. Shocker, right? Decide for it. Your affections are not always going to cooperate. It's your sanctified mind that makes the choice that we pray, Lord, bring my affections, bring them along for the ride. Bring them with my decision for the way of truth. Now, how does he say this is going to happen? Your judgments have I laid before me. He set them all out before him. See, if we're going to decide, what are we going to decide? Well, we've got to know what the decisions of God are. Judgments means His decrees, His decisions. What has God decided that you should do in heaviness? Well, I'm not sure. Lay out the judgments of God before your mind, before your heart, and then look at them like you would lay out jewelry on a counter. You could see them all out and then see what it is God has decided for you to do in your time of great heaviness. Because he's got to be guided by the map of God's Word. Years ago, young people, you probably never experienced this before the smartphone and the global positioning systems. You had to use a fold-out map or an atlas. And I'll never forget traveling through cities, going to a destination. Peggy would be in the passenger seat and uh, she would unfold the map and you know, sometimes it was a source of great contention on my part, my part, and sometimes I decided I had enough memory of that city, I wasn't going to listen to what she saw on the map and assured me, this is the exit, this is the turn. And I did it my way. And I distinctly remember one time, there was many times, we were in an area, I had to speed out of that area to get, a, it was not safe. It's not safe, beloved. For you to decide, so you can make a decision that's not based on God's decision, God's will. So we must be in the work. If reviving in strength for a melting heart, for a cleaving heart, for a glued heart to the dust comes through reviving, then this reviving, he's saying again and again, it's according to the Word. So I've got to stay in the Word even then. Because even then, what? I really don't feel like opening the Bible. Can we just be honest? Isn't that honest? I, I, don't, I don't feel like talking to anybody. I certainly don't feel like going to church. I don't feel like hearing that minister again. I'm just, I just don't feel good. Decide for it. Yeah. 
It's so important. Choose the way of truth. Get out the map of God's Word and open it up and be strengthened by the promises and the navigation system of God's revelation of Himself. We desperately need it. Next, I have stuck unto thy testimonies. O Lord, put me not to shame. So remove, here are the words, remove, choose, stick. So after you make a choice, stick to it. Well, because it's God's Word that you're sticking to. This is the same word in verse 25 where He said, My soul is joined to the dust, glued to the dust. Now I'm gluing myself to the Word of God. Oh Lord, put me not to shame. Now why does He say, put me not to shame? It means to disgrace or disappoint me. A couple of possible reasons. He could be in doubt. Has your faith ever faced a future with doubt? We have. Maybe you wondered, is God going to show up? I mean, is He really going to act? Will anybody really be saved? Uh, is the church really going to be built up? I mean, is this really going to happen? Well, if that's what he was thinking, he quickly turned back to confidence and said, I will run the way of the commandments. So he's looking to the future there. I don't think that's exactly what he means. I think all doubt is gone at this point because he's glued himself to the Word of God. So by faith, he just says, Lord... If this is going to work out, then it's going to be you, not me. See? Now, what would he do if he were trying to keep himself from shame? He'd have a backup plan. And I think that's the point. Now, remember the illustration from last Sunday about those political activists who want their voice heard, that they want change to take place in the government, so they'll find some event like a parade, or they'll find some busy street, and they'll glue their hand to the ground, to the street. Now you see the point. Once you glue your hand to the street, it's over. You're stuck. You're committed. Now suppose one of these activists were on his way, he's in the car, and they're talking the strategy. They got the super glue, and he says, in his own mind, what if this doesn't work? I mean, what if the government never listens to us? Hey, I'm going to glue my hand to the street. And what about when the police come? I mean, what if they throw me in the jail and I get one of these bad judges and I'm, I'm in there for good? And what about the camera crews? What shame. I mean, they're, they're focusing on us. They're laughing, saying, how oh, you thought this was going to work and it's never going to work. So what this guy does at the last minute he gets a super glue out and he slips on his hand a transparent glove. Puts the glue on. What did he just do? He's got a backup plan. If it doesn't work, he simply slides his hand out of the glove and goes home. Do you do that with God's Word? This is a classic example of the double-minded man in James 1. You say, I want to follow God's wisdom for my marriage unless it doesn't work. I got the glove on. I'm glued to the principles of the Bible for marriage unless it doesn't work. I'll just slide my hand out and I'm gone. I'm glued to the principles of the Bible when it comes to child training. I am glued to it with a glove because if it doesn't get the results I want, I'm going to some other kind of parenting method. Maybe the gentle parent or maybe something else that's offered in society. I'm glued to the Word of God when it comes to church life unless it gets really tough and people are hard to live with and get along with, you know. Then 
I got a plan B. I'm, I'm going I'm to slip out the back door. You know what that is? That's a double-minded man who James says is unstable in all his ways. He's like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. Why? His instability is owing to what? Desire. Let not that man think he shall receive anything of the Lord. Why? James 4. You ask and receive not. Let not that man think he shall receive anything of the Lord. The double-minded man. Why? When you ask, you receive not. Because you ask amiss to consume it upon your own lust. If God will give me what I lust after, fine. I'll stick myself to the Bible. But if He won't, then I'm slipping my hand out of the glove and I'll do it my way. God says, you'll get nothing from me. Which means what? You'll never be satisfied. Your lust will remain lust. And lust can never be gratified. Never can be satisfied. And so we stick our hands, our hearts to the Word of God. And we say, Lord, put me not to shame because I'm going nowhere. I don't have another plan. I don't have a backup. I don't have a plan B. I don't have another source. I'm not looking for another voice. It's your voice alone. And I'm sticking to it. So don't put me to shame. I think that's what the psalmist is saying. So remove from me. I'm choosing the way in my heaviness. And I'm, I'm sticking to the testimonies of my heaviness because I know my tendency to buy into other voices, so I'm stuck. If it's going to work out, you're going to work it out because I don't have a way to work it out for myself. I don't have a plan that says, if you don't get what I'm after, if you don't get me out of this heaven as quick, I'll get out myself. No, I'm stuck. Are you stuck? Are you joined to the Word of God? Well, how many times do you resort to it? Can we just be honest again? You can answer that question for yourself. I can answer that question for myself. Does it take heaviness to get us there? Yes, that's God's aim in our heaviness, but we should be there before the heaviness. We should be gluing ourselves to the Word of God. Then lastly, here's the last word, run. Now this is looking to the future. I think now the psalmist is walking. We might even say he's crawling, but he's still moving. He says, in the future, I will run. So he's declared. He's trusting God. He's asking God to remove the way of lying. He's choosing the way of truth. He's sticking to the testimonies of God. Now he says, I will run the way of your commandments. When you shall enlarge my heart. Now, what is an enlarged heart? And what does it mean to run? For those of us in the congregation who cannot run. I'm one of them. I mean, I could maybe do it 10 yards, but it'd be a disaster. <clears throat> of course, it's a metaphor for something spiritually. To enlarge means to enlarge the limit, the capacity of something. It's used to enlarge borders. If a country enlarges its borders, its capacity for more people has expanded. So here, somehow... When the heart is enlarged with regard to capacity, it means you can get some more of something in it. Like when you go from a 22 cubic foot capacity refrigerator to a 27 foot pack more in it. That's the imagery here. What is 
this enlargement, and how does that help us run? December 26, 1956, day after Christmas, a man is brushing his teeth. He looks in the mirror, and he says his testimony that he gave in 1957. He says, I saw the countenance of what looked to be Grinch-like. He immediately went to his pen, and he wrote the Grinch that stole Christmas. Theodore Seuss Geisel, Dr. Seuss. See, the book was born out of a problem with his own heart. He recognized it. He wanted to regain it. He pins those words of the Grinch that stole Christmas. And you know the story. The Grinch, he hated Christmas, the joy, the laughter, despised it. So he concocted a plan that he would steal Christmas. He went down to Whoville from Mount Crumpet, and he stole every single gift in the town. He went back up with his sleigh, burdened with the dog, dressed like a reindeer, burdened or a deer, made his way to Mount Crumpet, edge of a cliff. It's the morning, the dawn breaks, and he's waiting to hear the sound of wailing, crying, anger, frustration, and bitterness. And what does he hear? Joy. Singing. Singing. Now, Sue says in his book, at that point, nobody knows what happens. What happened? But Grinch's heart, which was two sizes too small, was enlarged three sizes. And what happened after it was enlarged? The sleigh went down the mountain with great speed. We might even say what? His sleigh ran down the mountain. It ran with alacrity, energy, eagerness, enthusiasm, cheerfulness, and joy. I don't know much about Dr. Seuss or anything he believed, but that just provided an illustration that you can see what God is saying to us. When our hearts are enlarged with a capacity to receive something, we once again start running in the commandments of God. Not a physical enlargement, but a spiritual enlargement. And what, what is the enlargement? We're having enlarged views of the greatness and goodness and glory and sufficiency and holiness and mercy and grace of God. We are being enlarged to views of God's mercy that we have not yet seen because we're seeing them in our heaviness. And those views are being enlarged through the testimony, through the commandments, through the precepts of God as He reveals Himself to us. And so this enlargement is increased capacity to receive the very love of God. That's what Paul prays for in Ephesians 3 when he says that you would be strengthened with all might according to His glorious power. That Christ would dwell in your hearts by faith. That you would be strengthened, that you would be revived. How? As the Spirit comes and Christ is dwelling in your hearts by faith. That you being rooted and grounded, stability in your heaviness, stability in your suffering, stability in love. Rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints the dimensions. What is that? Increased capacity. The breadth, the length, the depth, and the height. 
To know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. How are you, is your heart going to be filled with that fullness? Enlargement. As your heart is enlarged with the capacity to receive the love of God by viewing God's greatness and His holiness and His mercy for you. Out of that enlargement, you start running again. Have you stopped running the race? Are you heavy and weary and heavy laden? That could be a reality. Somebody here right now may be so weary, so heavy, you've just thought, I just want to quit. I want to quit life. I want to quit my marriage. I want to quit church. I want to quit everything. You need your heart enlarged. As the Holy Spirit pours out the love of God in your heart through the heaviness, through the trial, Romans 5. So that you can run. And so we see again, through it all, through all the heaviness, through all the sorrow, through all the depression, through all the pain, what is God doing? He's enlarging the capacity of your heart for joy by enlarging the capacity of your heart to see Him when you can see nothing else in your heaviness. You can't even look up. You don't know where you are, but you see Him. And so how are we revived? We declare. We trust. We ask Him to remove. We decide for the way of truth. We stick ourselves to the testimonies. And then we know when God enlarges our hearts, we will run with joy and peace. We will run in love, in the love of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your rich grace to us. And we just pray with the psalmist, make this a reality in our hearts. Enlarge the capacity of our souls. Expand them ever increasingly, whether it be three sizes larger or just a millimeter larger, Lord. Increase our capacity to know you and to love you so that the dimensions of Christ, which have no boundaries, no borders, no limits, we could move out and experience more of that love. May it fill our hearts with delight, rest, to know the love of Christ that purchased for us eternity. As we sit at the communion table this afternoon, may we understand and know more as we celebrate the love of Christ and your love for us in the cross, remembering Him, remembering the benefits of His death, remembering that even in our heaviness, your love is steadfast and unchanging because it's not dependent on us. It's not dependent on our performance. It's not dependent on the degree of our faith. It's solely dependent on your sovereign electing love. May we rest in the glory of that and may we love you more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.